James and worship team. I got choked up listening to Sonia sing. I, I was thinking of the, the year in 1999, the day before we left for Puebla. That year, uh, the phone rang about 10.30 a.m., and I found out that Bill and Joe, uh, kind of the patriarchs of the church, had been in a terrible car accident driving home so they could be here for the weekend uh, outside of Tulsa. And uh, the family insisted I go to the on the mission trip anyway. And then she passed, got promoted to heaven that uh, Tuesday night, Wednesday. So I got on a plane in Mexico the next day and came back home. And then Bill died two weeks later. So um, just rip your heart out. And then, uh, you know, we work with Tomas, Pastor Tomas and Carmen Yanez. And uh, they'd wanted to have children for so long, and they, uh, God did not allow them to have children the biological way. So they adopted a little baby, Lemuel. And uh, uh, when he was, what, four or five, he contracted uh, juvenile leukemia. And, of course, we had Tom Crow here who knows them well, and um, he consulted them informally. And all the things they were telling him in Puebla to do, he said, that's exactly what we do here. So he had a remission for a while, but he died. And it was just so painful to, to watch those parents um, lose that little boy. And you don't lose you don't lose them when they're... Uh, I, I believe that uh, people who don't reach full God consciousness, don't reach age of accountability, are saved by the grace of God. So I have no doubt. And he, he was... a Pretty smart little kid. I think he probably was regenerate anyway by faith. But and then today we have uh, uh, Linda Keeney. When I think of uh, it's ironic, Linda, that uh, the first Sunday after Bill got promoted, you had the strength to be here, and we're going to talk about marriage. But when I think about uh, the kind of uh, uh, duty and responsibility that wives and husbands have to each other, Bill and Linda were excellent examples of that. So uh, you know you. You get older and you get all these interesting memories that uh, come to your thought. But thank you for singing that song again because I know some of you guys that are really good singers don't like to sing the same thing over and over again. Uh, just like we preachers, you go, oh, I did Romans, you know, eight years ago. I don't want to bother them with Romans again. But I mean, uh, you could actually preach Romans every week. It wouldn't matter. You could sing that song every week. It wouldn't matter to me. So thank you for that. Yeah, let's open the Word of God, please, to First Peter 3. And i got to give you a warning just to be honest with you, Natalie. Uh, the content of these seven verses don't really apply to everybody necessarily. I mean, only the people who are married uh, and also uh, people who might be married and then also people who, who know anybody who's been married or might be married. If you're in one of those three categories, then you need to know this content. You need to know what God's game plan is for marriage because the, the culture doesn't buy it anymore. In fact, it kind of vilifies it. So if you're expecting Oprah or Jerry Springer to tell you about this, they're not. If they bring it up, they're going to say it's a bad idea. So it's really important that all of us, even if you are a confirmed bachelor or bachelorette, because you're surrounded by a culture filled with married people, you need to know God's basic design for marriage and family, his game plan. And we'll look at that in this amazing passage, which is so helpful uh, today, Lord willing. But first, let's pray that we'll be teachable to God's Word. And 
You know, the reason we're banging away at the, the Word of God every week and not the People magazine or uh, Reader's Digest or something, Ladies Home Journal, they still do that, uh, is because uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, that believers like Nancy Postal Waite or Crystal uh, Krista Bowles, almost said Crystal Bowles, but I, I know your name, uh, I know it's Krista, uh, might become mature, thoroughly furnished into all kinds of good works, and the good works that God calls Krista to do won't be the same good type of works necessarily in every area, every instance that God calls Nancy to do, but the stuff we need to, to do as believers and the way we need to do it uh, needs to be based on God's truth, His character, and His Word. So we're going to uh, unapologetically look at the inspired Word, but this is not an intellectual exercise. It's a spiritual, it's like a good physical workout. you got to actually, you can, you can, uh, you may need some medicine like an aspirin, and you can buy the, the medicine and look at the bottle. It's not going to help you. You can read about aerobic fitness. You can read about aerobic fitness. You can know everything there is to know about aerobic fitness, but if you don't get on that treadmill or that track or walk around the Colonial Golf Course, we, we, Tom and, uh, uh, Ron and I went to Colonial. I was trying to sell that trip last Sunday to anybody else, but nobody else had enough guts to walk the 17,957 steps we walked on Friday walking around that golf course, but that was a nice, that was a nice benefit. I really didn't think we'd walk that far. I went, whoa, 17,000, that's great. I try to get 8,000 a day, so I get to take the rest of the week off, you know, so it's great. But, uh, that doesn't work like that, does it? And so, you know, just approaching this as words on the page isn't going to work for you. Of course it's going to be boring. You know, if you realize this is the Word of God inspired and the Holy Spirit who inspired Peter to write this, can and will illumine us as believers to understand it so we can believe it and apply it if we enter into that dynamic with him. So when we pray for our caregivers and our protectors and our firefighters and our peace officers and our military, we're also praying that we'll be teachable and that this won't really, that uh, you know, the Holy Spirit will teach you way above the abilities of the teacher. You know, I do the best I can, but it's not really about the preacher. It's really about the message, right, Steve? So... Let's pray in that direction. Uh, Doug, uh, pray for me in that direction. Pray for all of us, okay? Thank you, Doug. Um, you know, Krista does a fantastic world-class job on Super Summer, and uh, we don't take attendance around here or anything like that, but I have noticed the last couple of years, it seems like our summer slump doesn't start until July, and it kind of the waves come back in August, and then we kind of go into another summer slump in September. But this year... It seems like the summer slump started the week after Easter. So I don't know what that means. Uh, you know, you, we have a certain amount of turnover, but uh, uh, we'll see what's going on there. And then uh, Michael, Lord willing, Michael and I will be, uh, and Anthony will be in the middle of Mexico next uh, uh, Sunday. Did you guys read that email that I sent you from Corman? That's pretty cool, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, one more thing. You know, people have no historical perspective anymore. A lot of People under 40 think Memorial Day is just one of, one of those days when George Washington, Abraham Lincoln got around a picnic table, you know, and drank beer and talked about baseball, you know. And technically that's not really kind of the basis of Memorial Day. It's a day, Memorial means you're remembering people who have died fighting for our freedom. And it didn't start with Pearl Harbor. It didn't start with 9-11. It goes back to 1775, you know, if you think about it. 
and uh, we have lost literally millions of Americans who have died uh, for the privileges that we enjoy in this country. And so we need to remember that during Memorial Day and be tempered by that. Okay, we're going to talk about divine viewpoint for Christians who happen to be husbands and wives or for those who might be or those who know people who are husbands and wives. So let me uh, temper this with some uh, fun cartoons about marriage. I've got a married couple at a marriage uh, counselor's office. Doug, you can probably relate to this. He's a counselor. Uh, and the wife says to the counselor, we were made for each other. I needed new luggage, and he came with a lot of baggage. Uh, different marriage counselor. <laughs> and this time, uh, he is uh, with... Uh, consternation responding to some of the input he's gotten from this couple. He says, you don't blog, you don't Twitter, you have no RSS feed. I don't know what that means. <laughs> You're not on Facebook. And you wonder why you can't communicate? <laughs> like, of course you can't connect with each other. And then the last one is in color. No extra charge for that. Uh, and she, she probably did this at church, you know, she probably signed up for these classes at church, which is all, which is all good. But, uh, she looks at the husband, and I guess she just signed up on, uh, through the web. She says, I signed up for the understanding relationships class and enrolled you in romance for dummies. <laughs> okay, we're working our way through the book of First Peter, and the purpose statement is right in the middle of the book. And it can be uh, paraphrased like this. As spiritual aliens, short-timers on earth. And that's Anthony uh, Foreman and Sharon Bearden and Brad McCoy. Christians, like us, should not be controlled by our emotions and our feelings, but we should consistently live our faith centered on our Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord, as our Savior, as our best friend, our, as our example so that unbelievers who might slander us because we're Christians and we're repressive and we actually believe all that stuff will see the reality of Christ in our lives and ultimately glorify God by coming to Him in faith. Or if you want a practical summary of the book, Angie, I would say it would be basically saying to you and to all of us, uh, Sonia, keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason because you can't come up with one. In fact, you're amazing three-pound uh, uh, combination of cells, the most uh, magnificent uh, package of cellular uh, uh, material in the universe, physical universe, can't come up with a possible reason why God might allow something to happen. doesn't mean there is no good reason. It just means you don't have enough capacity to understand it, which is why when you can't trace His hand, you trust His heart. Right. So just keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. That's your first general order. Now that purpose statement really kind of sits atop top what Peter's doing with the book. Uh, the first part of the book uh, leads up to that statement, talking generally about faith under fire. These folks have been forced to leave their homes and their jobs and their incomes and their cultures because of their faith. So it goes over the basics of Christian faith and works so that they won't abandon that. And now we're talking about faith under fire 102. We're talking about submission and then we'll move specifically to suffering as a Christian in this second part of the book. And we've been saying submission is a tough subject because I would, I'd rather, hey Jason, I'd rather subjugate than submit. And that's just me. You like that? 
I'd rather tell everybody else what to do than them tell me what they want me to do, right? Uh, it's a tough subject, but it can't be a bad word for us as Christians because as we saw last week, when we're submitting to human authorities over us, and in that passage last week is talking about masters or for slaves, household slaves in that culture, but for us it'd be us submitting to our employer or the company we work for, or the coach we're playing for, the teacher we're sitting under. Uh, we must focus on Christ as the ultimate example of godly submission when we're in positions we're supposed to submit. Realizing his submission is the very heart of his saving work for us. You can't make submission a bad thing when you realize what First uh, Peter 2 says, uh, when you suffer, look at the example of Christ, verse 21, uh, when he was being reviled and brutalized on the cross, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He submitted himself to that assignment. And it's interesting, uh, if you'll look with me, talking about the submission of Christ to his part of the mission and the plan of salvation. Look at John uh, chapter 6, and I, I quote verse 39 and, and 40 a lot. It's very near and dear to me, but quite often I don't look at the verse before that. So look at the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 38. And uh, it's important to realize that the Lord Jesus full, fully equaled God the Father as the second member of the Trinity took a subordinate role in the program of salvation. He was the sendee, not the sender. Okay, uh, And that's what he says here uh, in John 6, verse 38. Talking about his role in the plan of salvation. A subordinate role in the plan. Uh, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, I'm doing the will of somebody else. I'm submitting to my role in the plan of salvation uh, because the Father is the author of the plan. Jesus is the active agent. The Holy Spirit is the activating agent. Uh, I've not come down from heaven in the role of being in charge of the plan. I am the focus of the plan. I'm the servant in the plan of salvation. I'm the one who will go to the cross and bear the price of redemption. I didn't come to do my own will in that sense, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the ultimate will of him who sent me, the ultimate purpose of the plan of salvation and the work of Christ, that of all that he's given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him, if you put your name in the blank there, you can have the same no-so salvation that Bill Keeney had. He knew he was saved because of the person of the, of the Savior and the promises the Savior made to him. It's not about what you do for God. It's about what God does for you. Go back to First Peter. Uh, last week we emphasized that, yes, the death of Christ was an example of submission to the will of God. And that's an important function in our Christian life. But, Phyllis, we're not saved by following the example of Christ. Saved people are supposed to follow the example when you think of the work of Christ for salvation, it's not an example, it's an expiation, a wiping clean. He pays the debt we could not pay to God. And then when we trust in him for it, we're given eternal life. And then we follow him as our example. Uh, he himself said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom. So we're in this portion of the book all about submission. And based on what we learned last week, I'm saying the foundation of all that for Mike and Jan and for Homer and Pam and for Brad and Debbie 
is we start responding to all these commands to submit to human authority, even though no human authority uh, is perfect or uh, uh, fully deserving of uh, our... I've, I've worked for a lot of people. I've worked with people that it's hard to respect their character, but when they're over you, maybe in, maybe you're teaching as a, a temporary assistant professor, which is what one person described me as, which is actually higher than just a mere adjunct. I used to think they called me a junk professor. I didn't like that. Then they said, no, adjunct means you're part-time. Uh, but yeah, we start with Christ's submission for us at the core of the plan of salvation, and then we read, whoops, wrong. I think I know how to use this. Uh, first, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at our submission to human government, which whether you like President Trump or you don't, or like President Obama or don't, they're all a lot better than Nero, and that's who was in charge of the human government when Peter wrote. Then last week we saw submission to our employers, our teachers, our coaches, uh, people like in those kind of positions. And today we're going to think about our submission to our spouse. And I say our submission to our spouse because although Julie, in a in a real sense, is supposed to submit to David's leadership as the CO, as she's the XO of the team, uh, he's supposed to submit to God as he treats his wife with an understanding way and sees her as a fellow equal spiritually to him. So you always have to put these submission commands, which don't really sound good to us because we want to subjugate, not submit, in the context of the way Jesus submitted so that we could have salvation, okay? And Sarah, you're not going to hear that in your typical sociology class, and a lot of social workers don't think like this, and it gets all male repressive evil, uh, you know, it's all social constructs anyway, you can make up your own rules. Not really like that, okay? So the passage breaks down like this. That was a long introduction, by the way, much longer than I intended, so i got to cut some stuff out, but I will do that uh, on the fly. Uh, you know, I love this because I think I talked to Jason and Natalie about this on the fly a couple weeks ago, but when you look at this passage, you, does, does this, hey, Janice, is this good or bad? When Peter wants to tell you about divine viewpoint about marriage, he has six whole verses for you and one verse for him. Now, is that is that good or bad? I mean, you could take it either way. But I kiddingly say, uh, you know, this has been proven by psychologists. Women need to process 50,000 words a day. Okay? They've been hardwired to need to do that. Probably because... They have most of the babies nowadays, you know, thanks to technology. And uh, men are wired for 25 to 30. And after that, we've had all the vocal, verbal input we want, okay? And here's here's the problem. You know, a lot of homes, mom stays home with the kids. And if you're like Sonia, you know, you've got three kids, four and under. Basically, she said, no, don't, about a 100 times. So she's used a 100 words all day long. And she's got, she needs 49,000 plus more. Now Jeff's been working hard in the jungle known as Kelpro, and he's used and processed a lot more than 30,000. So you are totally exhausted in that area when you get home, and she is completely needy when you get home. So, you know, as soon as she sees you, the lights go on, and she says, I got somebody to talk to! You know, I gotta get all this stuff out. And so you, when you're driving home, guys, you're not done yet. You're gonna have to save something in the tank for your wife. But uh, you might say, well, Peter knew all that psychological data, so it's okay to give wives more verbiage than men. 
And I was kiddingly say, well, the reason he only gives men one verse is because uh, men, human beings with XY chromosomes, have a much shorter attention span than do women. So he knew if he talked to us for six verses, we'd stop listening or something because he doesn't mention football, you know, or whatever, or sports. But when you look at it, whether people think that's fair or unfair, it doesn't matter. When you diagram this in the original language, you've got two commands to wives and two commands to husbands. You have two commands and reasons for the commands, two commands and reasons for the commands. So even though he goes into more detail knowing the women like that probably or are into that, uh, he basically gives the same amount of content based on kind of the force of it. And I want you to notice the first six verses are directed toward the wives, verse 7 to the husband, but they both have two commands and reasons for the commands. And the portion to the wife looks like this. The first command is Christian wives, like Christ himself, submitted to the role of the Father and the plan of salvation, are they themselves to submit to their husband's divine-given role in marriage. And the husband is given the role and the responsibility of being the servant leader of the home, the first one to take a bullet, literally, if somebody breaks into the house at night. Although I've got a, I've got the judge... It's this thing like Dirty Harry was not tough enough to carry the judge around. It's got a shotgun shell in it. It's a revolver. I got six shotgun shells there. So I'm, I'm going to hit you multiple times before you get to me. I'm not a very good shot, but I just point it in the general direction. If I'm trying to shoot Mike, I shoot it here. He gets it. You know, so you can't miss with it. So just don't break into my house at night. Uh, although I let her clean the gun after me because I'm not good at mechanical, mechanical things, but I can, I can pull the trigger. But, uh, yeah, wives are supposed to admit to, a husband as the leader of the team, as an expression of their submission to God. He's always at the top of the chain of command, and that's really important. Look at verses 1 and 2. In the same way, we've been talking about how Christians should submit to human government and to their masters if they were household servants he's talking to in context or employees or athletes or students today and those kind of roles. And we're talking about submission. Let's get to the home. Wives, you're supposed to be submissive to your husband, not to all men. You're not inferior to men. You're not supposed to bow down to all men. You're not supposed to bow down and worship your husband. But you are to see him as the commanding officer of the team. Uh, you know, I think that this teaching has been mistaught, maybe in some previous generations of evangelical American Christianity, where it was the husband. In fact, there was a very well-known national conference where this guy went around the country. And the one time we went, we were just college students in Houston, and he just flat said, your job is to obey the human leader, including the husband God puts over your, uh, uh, over you, and let God deal with the problems like it was an absolute thing. And that ain't biblical. It is not biblical to give any human being, the elders of this church, the pastor of this church, your husband, your boss, the president, absolute infinite power over you, because he has or she has sin nature, she can he she can abuse you and do all kinds of horrible things. And Peter himself, who tells us to submit to human authority, seemingly generally blanket statement in Acts five, when he's told by the human government you can't tell anybody about Jesus anymore, what does he say to the human authority? He says, "Well, I'm supposed to submit to the human authority and let God take care of the problems." That's what the guy at the conference says. What does he say? I got to obey God rather than man. You know, when human leaders over you who have you know a role of authority over you are telling you to do things, think things that will directly cause you to violate uh, God's standards, to sin against God's a direct black and white thing, 
you always, because God's at the top of the chain of command, God's over your husband. God's over your boss. God's even over the President of the United States, whether it's Obama or Trump. Okay, And so you've always got to remember that. But assuming some kind of normalcy where we don't have abuse and all kinds of perverted things. By the way, as early as Deuteronomy 24, the Word of God says, uh, no divorce except if there's erwet debar in the Hebrew, which means nakedness of a thing, which is an idiom like raining cats and dogs, which just means extreme perversion in any area. And it could be sexual, but it could be physical abuse to me, any husband, any spouse that would physically abuse. Uh, but you can have people, I was watching a documentary last night about a guy, did you see this? Uh, an Olympic athlete who won the 1984 shot put, American, uh, was accused of abusing his wife and his uh, uh, son. And the way she tells the story, it sounds horrific. And she should have been out there a long time ago. But there is debate whether or not she, she ends up shooting him. There is debate whether or not she made the whole thing up. So I don't know what happened there, but if there's anything close to what they were describing there, she should have been out of there a long time ago. She didn't sound like she was a believer, but I don't, I don't know. So realize that's always tempered by the fact that God's always at the chain of command. Now the analogy that a lot of times I, when in this area people don't seem to refer to very much is this. And the key principle when you're thinking about wives submitting to husbands in Christian marriage is the example of Christ as articulated in 1 Corinthians 11. But let me just summarize it. God the Father and God the Son, God the Father and Jesus Christ are co-equal, right, in their attributes. If you don't believe that, you're not a Trinitarian, you're not even an evangelical Christian. They're co-equal in their attributes in their worth. And I don't usually like to use the word worth for God because he's of infinite worth, but just allow me to use that in this analogy, okay? Yet, God the Father and God the Son have different roles in the divine program of salvation. I'll show you what that looks like in a minute on a diagram. Jesus embraced a subordinate role in the sense he was the sendee and the Father was the sender. That's why he says, I didn't come to do my thing. I didn't come to come for my convenience. I came to do the will of him who sent me. And the will is for those who believe in me, have eternal life kind of thing. In the same way, husbands and wives are co-equal in their attributes, in their worth, in, in an ontological sense, yet they have different roles in the divine program for marriage. In the same way, the father has a different role than the son in the divine program of salvation. Christian wives are to embrace a subordinate role in that sense, but she's the XO, not the buck private. I do think that in part because of that traveling seminar that was so influential for a long time, uh, a lot of evangelicals thought, you know, the husband is like the uh, uh, commander-in-chief and the wife is like a buck private. And to the extent anybody read this passage or preached this passage or applied this passage in this way, I'm going to say you need to look at it again. Because in context, God's at the top of the chain of command. Okay, Trey, he is the commander-in-chief. You are the commanding officer of your detachment. And guess what? Julie... You are the uh, EXO, which is the executive officer. You're the full colonel. You're the lieutenant colonel. And I've talked to several military types, and they've told me no smart commanding officer does anything without full consultation with the executive officer. In most cases, if you really want to do well as commanding officer, just do pretty much what the executive officer says because he's usually more in touch with the troops, you know. 
And I always tell people, I can't do everything my wife tells me to do. She's only right 99.9% of the time. I might occasionally be wrong if I did everything she wanted me to do. And that's a, I'm not that good myself, so that's tongue-in-cheek, of course. Uh, I'm, after 44 years, we do 44 years in July, and if we make it after this message, and... Uh, uh, you know, I learned, I'm, I'm afraid not to, uh, make sure she knows what I'm doing because she checks my phone anyway. So I, I there's no secrets. I, I was trying to pull a secret on her recently. It was a nice one. She always figures it out. So there's no reason for me to do anything on the sly. But here's the one thing. When people share things in confidence with me as a pastor, I do not go home and tell my wife about them. So, so often anybody who says something, if somebody says something, share something with me as a pastor that I think might even in any way be uh, sensitive and and uh, that kind of thing for that person. I'm not going to tell Debbie about it, but most many of you ladies will tell me something that's kind of personal, and then a week later they'll they'll say to Debbie, "Hey, tell Brad, uh, you know the the problem I had at work is fine." It's just assuming she knows about it, because I guess you assume I just run home and tell them all your hangups. And I, if I err on that, I err on the side of being not. There are a lot of times you know it's a judgment call, but it's a judgment call I just won't say it. Now, some people just love to talk about anything they've heard somebody else say, and that's a problem. You say that if that person was in the room, okay? But, uh, yeah. But anyway, there's an analogy there. The plan of salvation involves the son taking a subordinate role, even though he's full, fully equal with the father. Ditto in the biblical marriage. The husband is the commanding officer. The wife's the executive officer. It's the kids that... Hey, Rowdy's the buck private, okay? Jason, you're the commanding officer, okay? Natalie's the executive officer, okay? And boy, you'd be an idiot not to listen fully and make sure she's fully briefed and pretty much do what she tells you to do most of the time. would be a really good plan. Um, but, uh, and I found out, you know, uh, when I was in dental school and had eye issues and, and, and heart change, uh, you know, I knew a full year before I dropped out of dental school, God wanted me to go to Dallas Seminary and end up here. I didn't know he wanted me here, but I knew he wanted me somewhere teaching the Bible. Uh, and, you know, I, I knew I outranked my wife. Uh, and, you know, back in my mind, I thought, well, you know, I'm pretty, I'm convinced this is what God's will is. So I pro- should probably just save time and say, Debbie, you know, we're just going to go from Houston to Dallas and go to seminary if they'll take me. You know, but, uh, you know, as we, if I got anywhere close to that subject, she just couldn't conceive of it because she thought God had got you into dental school. God wants you to finish dental school. You don't start something, you don't finish it. And I get that. And, I, I, you know, she just couldn't see it as even a plausible possibility. So I, I never doubted I knew what you, he wanted me to do on that. But I did realize even, and I was really dumb back then, dumber than I am now, if that's possible, I realized, Lord, since this, not if this is, Lord, since this is your will for me to leave dental school and go to Dallas Seminary, um, I, I believe that. Uh, I know you know that. And I know, therefore, if she can't see it, you're going to have to change her heart. So it's all about timing. And it took about a year, and then she had a miraculous, totally apart from my input, uh, uh, change of, of heart and vision. And uh, I didn't tell her we'd end up in Duncan, Oklahoma, so that maybe that wouldn't happen. But no, she didn't. She just said, hey, uh, she, you, you can go. Yeah, you need, and that was the, the timing of that was perfect. Okay. So you see the analogy there. Now let's talk about uh, the details of that. Uh, God the Father is the head of Christ. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every husband. Husband's the head of his wife. And God the Father is the head of Christ. So are we all Arians, not 
Trinitarians? No. They're both equal, but they have a different role to play. God the Father was the functional leader, is the functional leader in the program of salvation, even though he and the second and the third member of the Trinity are fully equal. Now here's why theology is not optional. All the commands are based on theology. We believe in one God who is expressed in three separate persons, mind, will, and emotion, who are co-equal, co-eternal. This is a second century diagram on two dimensions trying to explain that, which is impossible. But how many gods are there? How many persons are there? One, two, three. Jesus, the second person, isn't the Father, isn't the Son, but he's fully God in all his attributes. The Father isn't the Son nor the Holy Spirit, but he is God. The Holy Spirit is a person, the third member of the Trinity. Fully equal, right, Ray? The three members are full, fully equal, fully worthy uh, same amount of worth, infinite worth. In the being of the one God, there are three persons uh, with all these attributes, but they have different roles to play. And what does John 14 say? Uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, God the Father is the author of the plan. Jesus is the active agent, the member of the Trinity who becomes the God-man so he can mediate between God and man. And the Holy Spirit is the activating agent of the Gospel, or to say it slightly differently... The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, the Spirit glorifies the Son. They have different roles to play, just like husbands and wives have different roles to play in marriage. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, like Christ was submissive to his role in the plan of salvation, so that, worst case scenario, you're married to an unbeliever, disobedient to the Word, means the Word of the Gospel here, they may be, it's not a guarantee, but it can happen. Maybe one without a word by the behavior of their wives. It doesn't mean you never express your faith, but once you've done it a time or two, just banging away at that is just going to harden them probably. After they know where you're coming from, you just live it consistently as they observe your chaste. We usually think about that in sexual terms, but it means pure and clean generally, okay, um, including sexual areas. And respectful behavior. Whoa. You know what? God can use a wife's positive actions, recognizing her role on the team, responding to his initiative until or unless it becomes illegitimate to do so, sinful to do so. Uh, and even in the worst case scenario where you're married to an unbeliever, God can work through the behavior, the positive actions of the wife to show uh, him, what a Christian looks like. Most of us went to the movie Wednesday night. Instead of having Wednesday night services, we had movie night, remember? What was that? The Case for Christ? Was that the movie we saw? Lee Strobel? Leslie Strobel? How, how did Lee Strobel, what was the big thing that drove Lee Strobel to try to debunk Christianity? His wife coming to faith and he could tell a difference. Right? And so he tries to debunk the thing and he realizes it all adds up and he comes to faith. Uh, and so I thought that was a nice example of that. And there are a lot of a lot of women I know, including some people in the room, who've done the same kind of thing. But if you just preach at them all day long, that sounds like nagging. That just kind of drives them in the corner. Much better to put your position out there, live consistently with it, which means uh, when it's uh, time to do some stuff the husband wants to do, don't be saying, I can't do that tonight. i got to do Bible study. Can't do that tonight. I gotta pray for the next three hours, you know. 
You've got to be just as engaged. Being a Christian should make you a better wife. All of the factors equal. Although you don't have to submit to those who are violating God's standards and violating you, right? Uh, look at verses 3 through 6. The second part here. Christian wives are to see character as more important than cosmetics. Uh, and a demonstration of sweetness of spirit. We don't hear a lot of uh, people uh, lionizing sweetness of spirit anymore. That probably sounds kind of sappy. She's got a sweet spirit. Man, you've got to be a 21st century woman here. You know, you've got to be looking after number one. But a sweetness of spirit over an obsession with physical appearance. Uh, your adornment must not be merely external. The King James sounds like he's saying, don't wear dresses and that leads to all kinds of problems if you only wear clothes. You know, it's going to really mess a lot of us up who are visually oriented. You know, but don't let it just be having the fanciest hairdo, having the fanciest clothing that attracts attention to yourself, putting on fancy dresses. But let it be. Let your focus, let your priority be the inner person of the heart that God sees directly. Everybody else sees with the expression of it and the way you talk and the way you act toward husband and others with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Okay? So, uh, you you know, rather than... Some people enter every room mouth first. Okay? And that's not really a great way to follow the example of Christ. You know, kind of... Uh, and, hey, women need, need to use the 50,000 words, and I get that. But uh, let it be the hidden person in the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit... You see anything in our in our modern culture that says that's a good thing for anybody, including wives, to have at the core of their personality a gentle and quiet spirit? Man, are you kidding me? That sounds bizarre to our way of thinking, doesn't it? Which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, meaning in the Old Testament, and it is relevant for New Testament Christians, obviously, uh, the holy women, the women that really were close to God, who hoped in God. Hope means faith projected forward. They're waiting for the promised Messiah. Used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. That's Genesis 18.12. Wish I had time to put that in context. It's really pretty neat, but running late today. And you become her children, which means you become like her. If you do what is right, if you submit to your husband and focus on the inner qualities over an obsession just with the external qualities if you do it without any intimidation from husband or anybody else. You know, you got to do the right thing the right way for the right reasons. Uh, let me say this about that. About that. So we're talking about cosmetics uh, aren't as important as character. Let me remind you of McCoy's axiom of Christian living, which is all things in moderation, including moderation. Okay? So Peter's teaching Christian women here to prioritize their inner beauty over outer beauty. Now, one reason I think I fell in love with Debbie Walker is I grew up with three beauty queens. They were Western airs. They were beauty testant, contestants and stuff like beauty pageant contestants, my older sister in the Miss Texas process stuff. And, uh, you know, I've told a lot of people, you know, I saw those ladies at the breakfast table every morning and it was a train wreck. Okay? They, you could, they could really fix themselves up. And as a brother, you kind of don't like to think of it like that. But man, she really looks pretty good. But I saw them at the breakfast table. Okay, Julie, every morning. And it wasn't always pretty sight. Debbie looks beautiful with or without makeup. You know? She, 
and she's and she's she has a gentle and quiet spirit. Although, you know, she recently was talking to, uh, I think it was Peter or Cooper or one of our grandsons, little boys, and one of them said, "Grandma, you're so nice," which made me cringe. You know, I, uh, <laughs> you're so nice, and she looks, she says, and she knows I'm watching. She says, "Yes, Grandma is nice to everybody except for Paul." Paul. Now that, yeah, you're right, you know, but uh, I know what she means, you know. But thank you for that honesty, dear. And I got a feeling I've got uh, leftovers for lunch at this point. Um, so he's not saying you, you can't look stylish. I've talked about the fact that I think our ladies here look really stylish and really classy. Uh, and that's great, you know, uh, don't go broke trying to get the fanciest clothes. But we've got to prioritize spiritual beauty over physical beauty. He's not teaching Christian women they should never think about their physical appearance. He is teaching they should always think about their physical appearance under the umbrella in the context of the much more dynamic of inner beauty. Okay, I mean, I, I, I wasn't trying to make points with Linda this week when I was talking to her, but she's talking about when she met Bill, she was a sophomore in high school, and he had just graduated from Oklahoma State. And I thought, man, as a parent, I'm not sure I would have liked that arithmetic. But uh, the parents were fine with it. But she said, you know, I was always kind of this gawky high school kid. And I thought, I always kind of pictured you as a beauty queen, you know. And I, I did, you know. I mean, she's a beautiful lady, but she's she's got it inside, which is much more important. Uh, the inner person of the heart, the quality of, a, of a, a gentle, quiet spirit. To me, you want to translate that message Bible, I would say, you need to be easy to get along with, including with your husband. You need to be one of those people who looks at the half full part of the thing. Instead of just the half empty, be obsessed with that, right? Uh, so let's move from wives to husbands. I hate to do this. I'd rather prefer just talking about the wives, you know. But I think we're seeing in verses 3 through 6, uh, God can use a wife's inner beauty to transform her whole world, not just her husband. But let's move to, to Christian husbands here. And we see the same structure, even though there's just one verse here. We have two commands and then reasons for the commands. So the first command, first part of verse 7, notice, you husbands in the same way. Notice, that's what he says in verse 1. In the same way, we're talking about submission, submission, submission. In the same way, you've got to submit to the will of God and treat your wife correctly, which means you're going to submit to her sensitivities quite often if you're going to live with her in an understanding way. You husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as someone weaker since she's a woman. I wasn't crazy with the way the message did that myself, but that's okay. I don't, don't mind using the message for... Uh, Call the worship. I think it's fine, but I, let me tell you kind of what the original text means here, as, as I understand it. Uh, and I tell you what, let me brag on David for a minute. David did uh, last Sunday night. We had our uh, men's PM fellowship. David did a wonderful job of sharing his testimony. I mean, you were so articulate, so humble. It was such a God honoring uh, sharing. And, uh, and I've known David for a long time. And I remember the first week you guys visited back in the youth room, back when I was out of town. For some reason, I have a really good image of that. I don't remember everybody's first visit. I can barely remember my first visit 29 years later, but uh, David uh, is a solid guy. He's, he loves the Lord, loves the church. Uh, but uh, let's talk about that. Husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Kata nosin is the original, according to knowledge. And I always tell young husbands, that means don't keep making the same mistakes over and over again. You know, men cannot understand women 
but we're supposed to try to become an expert on our woman. So, Eric, enjoy that, okay? And, you know, you guys have been married how long? Almost 20, okay? The second 20 go a lot faster. But in some ways, they're more fun. Uh, but, yeah, I'm sure you know Ray a lot better at every level now than you did 20 years ago. But 20 years from now, you'll know her even more. And you'll go, th- you go through seasons of life, and you go through big hits that things happen to you, and people you love, and great things that happen to you, like grandkids. You know, although, you know, we had uh, all four of them, all four of Jonathan's kids about a month ago, and I rewrote that poem I wrote, and it goes like this. I don't think Jason and Natalie have heard this before. Uh, I've seen the lights of Paris. I've seen the lights of Rome. But the most beautiful lights I've ever seen are the taillights of my son's car as he's backing out of my driveway and taking my grandchildren back home. Because <laughs> after five days with them, I was like, zonked, man. I had nothing more to give. I mean, really. And I was happy to give it. Um, you know, the analogy, I think, of the way we should function as the commanding officer of the team here is what Jesus says about himself. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus is the ultimate leader of everything, including his church, and yet he takes a servant leader role. It's like a player coach. That's why I feel about the pastorate. I don't tell you to do anything I'm not willing to do myself. Some stuff I can't do. Rewire the, the wall. Ron can do that. Homer knows somebody who can do that. Uh, they can talk to him. Mike really knows how to get that stuff done. I can't help you there. I can push the lawnmower all day long, but I can't rewire for you. I'm not I'm too light. I'm not eating broccoli for you, and I'm not rewiring walls for you. I just it's a waste of time. I'm going to mess it up. But uh, I don't really ask or expect people to do anything I'm not willing to do. And that's I don't ask Debbie to do stuff I'm not willing to do for the most part. I mean, she has to call the plumber, call the mechanic, you know, deal with those people. Now, I'm getting better about that, aren't I, dear? Let's keep going. We're going to be here all day. Okay. The one command is live with your wife according to knowledge. In other words, you're, Anthony, you know, it's a moving target, but you've got to become an expert on Bonnie and find out what she likes and what she doesn't like and how to approach her on certain issues and how, you know, kind of what terminology to use to help her understand what you're trying to communicate. So it's kind of like, don't make the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, now watch this, talking about the, this is the controversial part of it, I think. Uh, as someone who's weaker since she's a woman, you're going, oh my gosh, I mean, there's no way that's going to fly. That's practically hate, hate speech. This is not a, a criticism. It's actually a compliment. He's going to, and you know that based on the next thing he says, uh, show her honor as a fellow of the grace of life. He's not putting women down as inferior in any way. But what does he mean by this? Well, I think the example you want is, uh, is, is Pam Cox more like a Ming vase worth $5 million or an empty Campbell's soup can? Which one is she the most like? She's like the vase, okay? And here's the thing. If I got a tile floor here and I got a Ming vase worth $5 million and I got an empty Campbell's soup can, if I push that Ming vase on the tile, what happens? It's gone. It's destroyed. If I knock that Campbell's soup can over... It might get a dent, and it probably won't even get that. And nobody cares. It doesn't matter if it gets a dent. You know, If anybody should be offended by this, it ought to be us. He's comparing you to a Campbell's soup can. I can, I can see why Amanda would be a Ming vase. And I can also see how you'd be a Campbell's soup can. So I'm, I'm, I'm good with it. You know, I totally get that. But that's the way you need to think about it. That's, that's the intent. And how do you know that? Because what he says next 
Husbands are supposed to see their wives as their spiritual equals. So this is not an insult, it's a compliment. Uh, show her honor. And Mike, you don't have to honor every woman. You need to honor your woman, you know? Show Jan honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And if you don't do that, it's not going to just harm her. It's going to be a sin against God. If God sees you as a Christian husband being less than considerate and respectful and a full servant leader of probably under your salvation, the best thing Michael has ever been given is Amanda. For sure the best thing God's ever given me is Debbie. She definitely makes me a much better person. Uh, if I treat Debbie disrespectfully, uh, God's given me this thing. I don't respect it. My thing, I don't mean to objectify women. Uh, you know what I mean? I mean that as a compliment, I think. Uh, yeah, in that case, I definitely do. But, uh, you know, if, if God gives me uh, this great woman who's followed me uh, all the way to Duncan, Oklahoma here for uh, 29 years, and we, we're going to do 44, which is was Hank Aaron's number. I always loved Hank Aaron, you know. So 44 is a big number in my life, you know, for that reason. Uh, you know, in July will be 44. Uh, if I take that gift from God and am disrespectful to Debbie consistently, I, I managed to do it, in, you know, in episodic things, then why would he be excited about giving me something else in my prayers that I'm going to disrespect? That's, that's kind of the rationale behind it. You see this here? Jeff, you need not only to... Uh, Avoid making the same mistakes over and over to ne- cause her needless pain. You need to see her as your full equal spiritually, as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Otherwise, among many other things, it's not going to help your relationship with her very much. Your prayers will be hindered. Now, how does that work? Our working definition on prayer is prayer is a grace channel of communication where believers seek and submit to God's will, realizing that their prayers are part of the process God includes to work out His will. So we're not telling, we're asking. Uh, we're not seeking God's hand, we're seeking His face. And uh, you can't do that well if you're out of fellowship with your wife in a sinful way because that affects the quality of your fellowship with the Father. Now let me finish this way. There's an elephant in the room. Uh, and, and by the way, that's an expression. You've heard that expression uh, but an elephant in the room, according to one major dictionary online, is a major issue that's obviously present, obviously in play, but avoided as a subject for conversation because it's uncomfortable to talk about it. It's more comfortable just to ignore it, even though everybody knows the issue is there. The elephant in the room in this passage is, he never mentions what Frank Sinatra sang so beautifully about, you know? And for those of you under 40, uh, this is called a record. It was a round piece of plastic. You will not believe this. This was a 45. They had big ones and little ones. This was a little one. And a 33 and a third was even smaller, right? Went faster, whatever. But uh, you had these little pieces of plastic, and they were kind of like this, kind of bulky, and they've got grooves in them. You're not going to believe this. Hey, Rowdy will not believe this. We used to listen to music by having these plastic discs with grooves in them, and we'd put it on this uh, machine called a record player, and we'd put this needle that was electrified, and we'd go in the groove, and the thing would spin, and you'd get music out of it, you know? And Frank Sinatra, I remember one summer, my mother listened to this Frank Sinatra album all day long, every day. I'm not sure what that means, but uh, and it had this song. And so as a little kid, I, you know, love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like a horse and carriage. Dad was told by mother, you can't have one. Yeah, so you've heard the song. 
And so we all know that love's the key to marriage. Now, some preachers will, will throw that down, but it's really, it is true if you define love in a biblical sense. Of course, for James, we think about all you need is love. John wrote it, but the guys sang it. And just to make sure you got the point, before they started singing the song, they say the word love nine times. Right? And then they sing the song. So we all know love is the essence of marriage. And I say, yeah, if you define love correctly, it is. But I'm convinced that Peter, superintended by the Spirit, assumes you know that. He assumes you realize, Julie, that agape love is at the center of your commitment to Ron and his commitment to you. And that's not an emotional thing. The emotions are great. And it's not erotic either. And the erotic thing is really good. But the core of that uh, dynamic that holds love together that allows us to obey these commands under our submission to God is a kind of love that seeks the other person's highest good consistent with God's will or His glory. So agape love is seeking the other person's highest good. And that frees us up to serve them uh, and that's the kind of love that is at the core of that. Peter assumes you know that. I mean, Paul's already told you that in Ephesians, right? And Ephesians was written before this. But uh, I think that's why that's not mentioned, just assumed. Uh, so let's pray the truths of this passage will allow us to kind of refresh ourselves as to these basic uh, responsibilities, roles, these positions we're supposed to play in the marital team. And... Uh, not said often enough, but as great as marriage is, it's not really designed by God to make us happy as much as it's designed to make us holy. You learn a lot about yourself, and sometimes you learn some really painful things about people <laughs> when you get married. One person can take a vehicle full of people and total the vehicle and kill all the people. It's possible for one person to total a marriage doing unbiblical, ungodly things. Uh, to the extent we misinterpreted this passage in evangelicalism in the last 50 years, I think there was a tendency to vilify anybody who got divorced for any reasons. And I don't think the, the grace of God, uh, anybody's beyond the grace of God before, during, or after. I don't think God's any less gracious to believers. Even believers who get divorced, even the one who's the problem, can rehabilitate themselves spiritually. But quite often we would vilify the victim of a dysfunctional, unbiblical marriage because they did the right thing getting out of it. Uh, and if you read the Deuteronomy 24, 1 Corinthians uh, 7, and Jesus talking about this in Matthew 5, 19, you see things like that. But for most of us, we're not going to be in those horribly traumatic relationships. We have a role to play. And God's design for marriage isn't just to make you endlessly happy, but to make you holy. I remember... Uh, I was told by one of the people who taught me how to do weddings at Dallas Seminary, that you're going to stand there as a, as a minister and you watch uh, the bride come down and he says, look at that groom. He's looking at her like, you know, I got an empty box in my life and she's going to fill every nook and cranny. Everything I want, she's going to push all my buttons all the time. And he says, you got to feel sorry for people like that because <laughs> it's not going to happen. Uh, you know, marriage is empty and it only has what you both put into it. And to the extent you embrace uh, the way God describes the way this thing works, uh, if both parties are involved, it can be a beautiful thing. And I'm a big proponent of marriage, but got to do it God's way. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, give us the um, the power by your Spirit 
and the perspective by focusing on the submission of Jesus in his role in the plan of salvation uh, to allow us as husbands to submit to your will and to be fair, loving uh, servant leaders in our, our marriage and to see our wives as our full equals uh, in a spiritual sense. They're superior to us in a lot of ways, but they're our full equals spiritually and uh, at the level of being. And for wives, help them to see they've got a role to play. They've got a role to play as the cheerleader for the uh, the leader of the team, as a supporter, as the closest confidant, as someone who's probably closer to the troops, the kids, than the ex- Oh, as the CO and as the executive officer, let the wives embrace that and realize that kind of biblical submission is one way to submit to you uh, in a very practical way. And that kind of lifestyle can have powerful spiritual impacts on husbands, even unbelieving husbands, and definitely powerful impacts on these ladies' worlds, their social networks and their, their extended families and the people they work with and so on. So help us to realize that marriage is all about holiness, not just happiness, and help us to re-embrace um, living out those roles for those younger folks who aren't married or uh, uh, you know, but will probably be married at some point. Let them to at this very early point in their life realize exactly what they're going to be getting into, exactly what their responsibility is as Christians in this very very seminal institution, which is being totally redefined and, and repackaged and, and uh, re, uh, uh, morphed into something is never designed to be. Uh, thank you for this time together. I pray you would be blessed and glorified as we apply this truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.